everyone? I have Great. And you guys? Hope you enjoyed uh, gaining one more hour of sleep or otherwise. And um, yeah, for me, yeah, let's enjoy that. Um, or use that hour to spend a little more time with my children right now. So most valuable. Well, uh, with that said, let me just give you a quick update of my family. Uh, as you know, uh, our daughter Natalie was born uh, three weeks ago, so she's just a little over uh, three weeks old now, and she's very healthy, and uh, she's growing very steadily right now, and I'm very thankful. And my wife, Deb, is uh, slowly but surely uh, recovering, and I'm very thankful for that as well. But thank you guys for all your prayers and support in many different ways, and I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, it's good to be back uh, on the pulpit, uh, preaching God's word. And uh, like I shared at the prayer meeting this past week, I really hope that we can uh, really heed his word uh, together, uh, as that is the only uh, rock and foundation that we can bank on. And uh, I'm really excited uh, for this time right now, actually, uh, as when I was preparing for this message, I was really um, having a great time, and uh, I really hope that um, the Holy Spirit can really open our hearts right now as uh, Jonathan uh, prays for us just now. Well, uh, we are going to be back in the Gospel of Mark, uh, and we'll go as far as we can uh, in the book through the rest of the fall. And as a reminder, as we come back to this book after um, uh, quite a Hiatus. Uh, so the main theme of this book is really learning about who Jesus is. And you know, we, we say, we claim that Jesus is the head of our church and of Christianity. You know, uh, our faith is named after, named after Jesus Christ. Uh, meaning we, have, we must know him well if we really um, claim to be his followers and his church. And I believe this book will help us uh, do just that. And the next three weeks uh, in this book, uh, specifically, we'll be learning about the authority of Jesus. And I hope that uh, God will establish his authority in our hearts as we uh, study this passage together. So let me uh, read for us uh, the today's passage, uh, which is Mark 4, uh, verses 35 uh, through 41. Mark 4, uh, 35 through 41. This is God's word. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowds, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Uh, 
And they walked him and said to him, Teacher, do not care that we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Why, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? That is God's word. Uh, please bow your hands quickly and let's pray together before we go any further. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Uh, thank you that uh, you love us and that you um, are feeding us and nourishing us and guiding us through this time with your word. And your word is indeed living and active. And we trust that you are here with us speaking through this time. So may you truly open our hearts and uh, open my lips to speak your word alone. So we can be built up as a church. And Lord, help us uh, to grow to love each other as well. Uh, not that this is a time of individual nourishment and learning, but that this is uh, you know, church time, community time, uh, where we get to grow together as a family in Christ. Thank you, Lord, uh, for uh, making our church. Thank you for your great uh, steadfast love towards us as your family. And I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. As usual, I have three points for us to help us follow along. And those are uh, the purpose in the storm, second, authority over the storm, and third, the journey through the storm. And the title for this message is The Lord Over the Storm. First, uh, the purpose in the storm. Uh, verse 35 and uh, 36 says, says this. On that day, uh, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And after leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. Uh, let's set up the scene of the story together. This is a story, so it's uh, good for us to visualize in our head uh, what's going on. Uh, so the words there, on that day, uh, refers to uh, the same day on which Jesus uh, spoke the parable to the crowd. You know, we learned this in, the, in September, uh, and um, it starts at the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, so we are in the same scene as the, the parable passages, you know, by the Sea of Galilee. And here, with that in mind, with that sort of background in mind, now we also see the word then, that he, Jesus spoke to then. So who are they? You know, according to, if you go to the next slide, according to verse 34, which is the first text that comes uh, right before today's passage, uh, it says, uh, you know, Jesus was talking to the disciples. So the so they are disciples. 
But to clarify here, uh, in context, these disciples are not just the 12 disciples, uh, but the people, uh, you know, anyone who have, has come near Jesus uh, after he spoke the parables. I think we, we saw that in the beginning of the chapter. Um, you know, these people came, uh, come, came to Jesus to ask more about the, the parable and the meaning. And uh, Jesus gave you know, more to them in response. So we, we saw that these people, the disciples, uh, are distinguished from the crowd, as we see in verse 36, uh, in that these people, the disciples, actually pursue Jesus and allow uh, Jesus' word to invade their lives and bear fruit, while the crowd uh, only hears the word on a surface level. So these are the dedicated, engaged followers of Jesus. And to them, what does Jesus say? He says to go on the boat with them and set sail to the other side of the lake. And now, uh, I want you to see that this is a very problematic and even uh, dangerous invitation to the next slide. Um, it's a very challenging and uncomfortable invitation. Three reasons. First, the text says it was the evening, and logically, it's not, a, it's not the best time to set sail, right? Uh, they didn't have LED lights back then, right? Let alone, you know, radar or GPS. Not a good time to, uh, you know, go into the lake and uh, go to the other side of that lake. Uh, not a good time. Second location, the Sea of Galilee was notorious for uh, violent storms. And indeed, we now know from research that it's because the lake is situated about 700 feet below the sea level, that's quite a bit, so that there are many downdrifts of you know, wind and air that cause storms. Uh, and, and guess what? Some of the disciples that we just saw uh, were experienced fishermen, so they must have known uh, this fact about the lake. So when they heard that they're going on the lake uh, at night, and in, on this lake in particular, they must have been like, ah, I don't know about this. And lastly, uh, the, the other side that Jesus is taking them to is none other than the country of Gerasenes, as we'll uh, study next week. Uh, and that is a Gentile area. And if you know a little bit about uh, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, they don't mix together, especially Jews. Uh, they, you know, separate themselves from the Gentiles uh, to feel superior, and for them to go to their the Gentile area would make them feel uncomfortable. And besides, you know, right now their current location this is perfect for them. Why? Because they're part of this Jesus crew right now, and the ministry is thriving. You know, they're, he's getting popular, and uh, people are you know praising him, and as his followers. This is comfortable, more than comfortable, it's, it's, they, they love it. But if they were to go to the other side of the lake, it's unknown, there are many dangers even in their mind. 
I think equivalent in today's world might be, you know, us being told to go to Russia. Uh, you know, when, as you know, there are many tensions right now uh, in the region, and uh, even you know, hear reports of people getting arrested, you know, for political reasons. You wouldn't choose the country right away, right, as your first choice. It's kind of like that. And that is the invitation that Jesus gives to uh, the people who are loyal and serious about him. But this is odd. You don't do this to people who follow you. But for some reason, the disciples comply and they do leave the crowd. Again, the people who are not that interested in Jesus. And they take Jesus on one of the boats and they set sail. And guess what? Their fear uh, is about to come true. So we see in verse 37, it says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. I don't know if any of you had an experience of, you know, uh, near drowning experience, or any, you know, any danger situation that you experienced, uh, like firsthand. That maybe can empathize uh, with the disciples. Um, you know, they are, you know, about to sink. Basically, they're in grave danger. Just to give you a, a sort of a picture there, um, the fishing boats at the time were pretty big. You know, about 27 feet long and eight feet wide. But for some reason, it wasn't very deep. It's only four feet deep. So as you can imagine, uh, as a storm is you know, brewing and um, a lot of perhaps rain and also waves high, um, the, the boat is you know, getting filled up with water very easily. Again, this is only four feet deep. So they're in grave danger. Their fear came true. And guess what? It was Jesus that led them right into it. The question is, why? Why did Jesus do this to them? Well, two things to consider to answer that question. First, you know, from other parts of the Bible, we know that Jesus can see the future. He's omniscient. And so he knew that the that the voyage to the other side would end up in this turbulence. He knew that. But at the same time, we also know from the parables that we studied in Mark that, that Jesus wants his disciples to grow and bear fruit in their lives. So putting those two together, we answer the question by saying, Jesus must have intentionally took the disciples out of their comfort zone and they took them and had them, uh, he had them go through the dangerous trial so that what? So that they would grow and bear fruit. Meaning, Jesus' goal for his disciples, for his followers, it is not earthly comfort or prosperity as, as good as they are. The main ultimate goal for Christian life is not those things, but the inward growth in their hearts. That's the main goal. That's why he would do this. Uh, 
the next slide. Uh, that is a picture of our three-week-old daughter, Natalie. Um, and, um, and when she turned two weeks old, you know, we took her to uh, her pediatrician, and, uh, and she told us to start her tummy time. Tummy time. How many of you know what tummy time is? Okay, about half of you, or more than half. Uh, tummy time, for those of you who are not familiar with this uh, idea, it is to have newborn babies uh, to be on their tummies and, and make them suffer for a few, few minutes. Because normally babies you know, must not be on their tummies uh, because if, if you do that, you know, they will have a hard time breathing. It's dangerous actually. It's imperative that the babies uh, you know, to be on their back, especially when they're sleeping, to ensure their safety. But the doctors encourage parents to do tummy time, uh, you know, at least for a few minutes, several times each day, uh, in order to develop their muscles uh, and, and eventually enable them to uh, crawl and walk. It's a very important exercise for the babies. So we started doing this with Natalie uh, when she turned you know, two weeks. And right now, as you can kind of see from the picture, it's a lot of suffering for her. Uh, you know, she just has no strength right now. So all she does is basically, you know, uh, just lie flat like that on the floor and just wobble for her life and cry. And for a few minutes, we just let her do that and suffer. We love her. <laughs> um, so, I mean, at this point, you know, if you just kind of look at that, you might accuse me and Deb uh, of being, you know, inhumane, cruel parents. Like, who in their right mind you know, make their children suffer like that, right? But there is a good purpose, isn't it? Because we want her to grow. And so does Jesus for his disciples. What that means, guys, that if you are a follower of Christ, there is good purpose from God for every trial that you go through for your past, present, and future. It's a fact. I mean, of course, to clarify, God is not the author of evil or sin. But God sovereignly uses them to bring about good, as we see uh, in Genesis 50, 20, it says, uh, you know, Joseph is saying about the evil of his brothers, which was human trafficking, tragic. But he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And God specifically uses them for uh, the good that says, which is our spiritual growth. That's the goal. And we learned this a few weeks ago when uh, Pastor Sam Houston spoke on uh, James. Uh, let me just do a recap with us here. It's found in James 1 through 4. It says, 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is why Jesus would invite us to trials. Let me kind of hash that out a little bit because if you just take it on this level, I think many people might misunderstand the purpose of this. Meaning, I'm not trying to make our suffering, your suffering, trivial here. I'm not saying that you've got to get over it because there's purpose. I'm not saying that because I know, you know, a room this size, many of us perhaps right now are suffering with the various trials. And I'm sorry that you are in that right now. I'm sure it might be heart-wrenching and a lot of anguish and even losing sleep, lots of pain. So how do we still have hope during those trials? And let me share with you about uh, this Jewish psychologist named Viktor Frankl. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but um, you know he was um, you know, in prison in a concentration camp. But as a psychologist, he apparently did research during, you know, the imprisonment, uh, during World War II, obviously. And also he counseled other fellow prisoners too. And he found out that the prisoners who endured and survived, even thrived during the, the concentration, um, the commonality between them was this that they all had a purpose outside the camp to live for. Well, he used the word meaning, but interchangeable, interchangeable in his book. That they had a purpose outside of the concentration to live for. The, the, some of them had loved ones outside the camp to live for. Others had books to finish writing outside the camp. Meaning, you know, when we realize that there is a purpose in our trials, and that we're not suffering aimlessly, this is not just for whatever, but this is actually for a specific purpose that God ordained for our trials, it helps us to endure. And Jesus wills that your suffering of various kinds has a clear purpose of you becoming more like him, more mature disciple. Of his. So if you are suffering right now, or if you have, or if you will, may you fight well, may you endure well, because there is purpose. Jesus did not bring his disciples to storm for nothing. There is a purpose. The purpose in the storm. Second, the authority over the storm. Verse 38 says this, But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and uh, said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So if a boat is about to sink in the midst of a tornado, and the disciples are freaking out, obviously. But in contrast, in stark contrast, Jesus is not troubled one bit 
He's sleeping in the middle of a storm. The waves are high above maybe 10 feet. He's sleeping. Why is that? Here we find out. Verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. There was a great calm. But when the disciples frantically wake him up and, and you know, tells him to do something, Jesus simply gets up. He rebukes the wind. He tells, he commands the waves and the sea to be still, and astonishingly, they obey. You cannot miss this. It's a great calm, right? Um, there, before there was a great storm. The same, the great is the same Greek word, mega. Great storm, now great calm. Um, you know, at first glance, uh, you know, this may seem like just another you know, miracle story that we have been seeing in this book or in the Bible. Uh, but there's much more depth to this. So please follow with me. You know, in the Old Testament, the servants of God, like Elijah or Elisha, uh, would heal people or even bring people back to life from death. So they did miracles too. But when it came to controlling the nature, especially raging seas, uh, only God stands out. And humans are depicted to be helpless before the force of nature. Meaning the nature is of a scale uh, you know, that only God can handle as a creator of the universe. So for example, Psalm 107, uh, 25 through 30 says, For the Lord Yahweh commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea, they mounted up the, to, the, to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage, the people's courage, melted away in their evil plight. Uh, they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. See the similarity there with our current text? In fact, there are many pictures like this in the Old Testament. And guess what? The disciples were Jews who were familiar with these passages from the Old Testament. Meaning, when all this happened before their eyes. Uh, to them, Jesus was displaying to them directly, showing them, guys, I'm just not a mere miracle worker. Are you kidding me? I just calmed the raging seas before your eyes. I'm showing you that I am God who has authority over the laws of nature in the universe. Jesus is God of power who is utterly sovereign over not just the nature, just a, this is one representation, right? He is sovereign over all circumstances of life, 
beyond human abilities. That's what he's trying to show them and to us. Meaning, in any and every circumstance that we face in our lives, we can rest assured that Jesus is in control, able to deliver in any situation. That's what he's trying to show us here. But now, the quick question on that. So, Jesus is able to deliver us in any, any situation. The question that perhaps we should ask is, you know, what about those times when you know, God does not deliver us, right? If God is able to deliver us, why not, when I'm in trouble, He never answers my prayer? Why not? Does that mean God is not all-powerful after all? Now, does that mean He's not there in my troubles? And I have to admit that that's not an easy question. Uh, in fact, we cannot claim to know uh, why exactly God does not act on you know, certain circumstances. But listen, Bible does say this, that we do know that when God does not act, He is choosing not to act in order to accomplish His good will. And there are many proofs for that in the text, in the, in the Bible, but the best way that I know to prove this is when we look at the cross. At the cross, there was the worst atrocity, injustice, where God the Son was being mistreated and unjustly murdered. And guess what? God the Father turned his face away. And he let him die. And he chose not to act. Jesus was never delivered from the cross. The question is, why? Why didn't he deliver his son, Jesus Christ? The reason was so that you know, through Christ's sacrifice, the sins of his people may be paid for. He had to die. What that means is, in each and every trial that we face, you know, whether God you know, delivers us or not, we can trust that He will sovereignly accomplish what is best. Again, whether He delivers us or not. He is sovereign and in control in every single circumstance. And it's always for what is best. Is in control. Um, I've not used this illustration before, um, but I'll use this movie uh, in, a, in a little different angle this time. Um, so, this movie is called uh, Stranger Than Fiction. How many of you watched this movie before? Okay. okay. I expected them. <laughs> we talked about this, I think. Um, uh, so this movie uh, is a really good movie, by the way. It's a story about a real guy named Harold Crick, uh, played by Will Ferrell, uh, who finds out in the story, in the movie, that 
his life is being written and uh, is being dictated by somebody else. And Karen Eiffel, uh, Emma Thompson, in the picture, uh, you know, she plays the famous novelist who is unknowingly writing the story that is dictating Carol's life. And by Karen's words on the typewriter, you know, Harold either remains in a challenging situation, and also by her words, Harold is delivered from those situations because she is the author. And interestingly, in the movie, there are you know, people around her uh, that disagree with her and, and try to make her you know, write the story you know, the way they would like. But in the end, you know, she writes and ends the story the way she intends and it turned out to be a great story. Again, God is the author of our story. He's the author, he's the, he's the writer of our lives. And of course, this should not lead us to fatalism that may say that you know, we can just apathetic about our life because God already you know, wrote everything about us. Uh, the fact of the matter is that God has not revealed every detail of his story to us. Uh, you know, so he expects us to, he expects us human beings who are responsible beings uh, to obey and choose his storyline in our lives. So there's no, you know, uh, opportunity for fatalism there. Rather, you know, God being our author assures us that God is in complete control, right? Now, God never says, oops, he never says that. He's the author. By his words, people are delivered from their troubles. By his words, they remain in their troubles. He can easily do these things, you know, whatever, you know, for whatever is best for his glory and for our joy. He may deliver, he may not deliver, or deliverance may come in the form of suffering because you know, it will grow us and it will bring the most glory and the most joy in the end for us. God is sovereign. In every trial, if that's true, in every trial we can trust that God is working out what is best for our lives, right? There's no need for fear and despair. And guess what? In the end, all will be good. That's the promise of the Bible. So therefore, if we really believe in God's absolute sovereignty like that, our prayer during trials should be, Lord, Deliver me from these troubles because I know you're able. But whether you choose to deliver me or not physically, help me stand firm in you. Because in any situation, you are sovereign. I can rest in you. God's sovereignty. And thirdly, lastly, the journey through the storm. Now here's the aftermath of the storm. In verse 40, 
It says this. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus showed that the disciples' fear of the storm was because they lacked faith in the identity of Jesus as God and also his power over all circumstances. And with a mild rebuke there, uh, have you still no faith? It's not just to make them feel bad. If you look at it in a different angle, there Jesus is trying to arouse, stir up faith in them because they have none right now at this moment because of the panic. But he's stirring up the faith in them and wants them to grow in their trust in who Jesus is and what he's capable of. And lastly, verse 41, that's the response of the disciples. And we read, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Just to clarify, their fear here is different from the fear of the storm earlier, obviously. Uh, you know, here the disciples are more in awe and having a reverent fear towards Jesus you know, after they witnessed the power and glory of Jesus. And that fear uh, diminishes the fear of storm at this point. And then they ask this hopeful question. They ask, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And I believe they're not just having this, saying this as an expression of, you know, astonishment, saying, you know, who the heck is this? It's not that. Rather, because they just have seen what Jesus did, and from the scriptures they know that what he just did is what only God can do. They're thinking, they're trying to understand, my, my goodness, wait, wait, this is who Jesus is? Like, really? So could that mean that Jesus is God? Mind-boggling. Meaning, because of the manifestation of Jesus, who he is, through the experience, they are growing in understanding of who he is. And that will contribute to um, growing up their faith, you see. And here's an encouraging fact from these two passages. What that means is that faith, our faith, does not grow overnight. It's not like, like this, and you know, you get excited, and oh, I have more faith. But guess what? That will die down next day. That's not really faith. True faith grows steadily. And God especially grows our faith gradually as he walks us through what? Trials. Trials. In his grace. And we can't fail, it's fine, just like disciples did. But he will say, have you no faith? Where's your faith? Let's grow our faith. This is a journey. Experience more of me, and here's your reward, more faith. Some of you might know this story. I think I shared this um, here and there in our church. But for me, uh, just to be a little more personal here, 
uh, one trial in my life that tested uh, my faith uh, came through a health problem that uh, my wife's dad experienced about uh, nine or ten years ago. At the time, uh, we were dating. Uh, we, were we weren't uh, married yet. And uh, on a random evening, uh, dad started having a tremendous pain in her you know, stomach area. And so we went to the ER. She was, you know, in so much pain. And it turned out, uh, after all the testing, that she had a tumor uh, in one of her ovaries uh, that was the size of grapefruit. And it was twisting one of her ovaries. So right away, you know, she wanted the surgery because it was really a dire circumstance. Um, and, and they thought the tumor. Um, and so she came out of the surgery and you know, she was recovering and we thought everything was fine. But then, uh, within the next few hours, um, you know, she started losing blood pressure and even some you know, consciousness. Uh, it turns out that for whatever reason, you know, after um, the surgery, she was bleeding internally. Um, you know, losing lots of blood, and as you can imagine, uh, this was a very, very dangerous situation. Um, so they hurried her back to the operation room uh, the next day, like, in the, I think maybe within 24 hours. And, and they cut her open at the same spot. And they tried to stop the bleeding inside. And I want you to imagine with me, so I was sitting, you know, uh, there outside of the operation room. Uh, I was in seminary at the time, so I had my Hebrew textbook with me. And I was sitting uh, in the waiting room. And, uh, you know, for several hours, it took several hours, uh, the entire operation. And, you know, and I, I can't forget um, the, all the feelings and everything that I was feeling. Um, and as you can imagine, I was just in a lot of anguish and just a lot of worries. And, uh, and I had to face the likelihood that I might lose her, right? She lost a lot of blood, a lot of you know, blood transfusion, and you know, they were doing a lot of things you know, to uh, keep her alive, and it was scary. So I was praying while I was uh, waiting for her to come out, and at one point, I literally blurted out, you know, God, I do not trust you. God, I can't. I have no control whatsoever over this. You know, she's already in the room, and what, what, what can I do? And therefore, I just can't trust that you will deliver her. Because I don't see it. I can feel it. I don't trust you. And I feel miserable. That's what I was literally blowing out in the room. Well, fast forward, the surgery went well, and obviously, you know, that recovered from that. And afterwards, you know, I kept looking back at the moment of, you know, the crisis of faith, right? Uh, with the, I think, to be honest, level of shame. And I couldn't believe that I, I was saying those words to God that I was not trusting him. 
you know, again, I was in seminary at the time, and, you know, clearly I knew a lot about God from classes, but, um, you know, it showed that my practical faith was not as mature. But I now realize, and I always look back at those moments, I realize that it was a storm. That Jesus somehow, you know, in reawakening, brought me to uh, to the storm to unsure me. It, it's as if, you know, just like in this passage, Jesus was asking me, have you still no faith? Where's your faith in God? Where's your faith? And he made me witness something extraordinary of God healing that, even in the absence of my faith. So I could know more about God and his goodness and his grace. Meaning God was exposing my faith, or lack thereof, and growing my faith. And guess what? There are many experiences like this in my life so far. And that's how I grew. You see, in every trial, guys, every trial, if you want to grow, if you don't, forget about it, but if you want to grow, you have to realize in every trial that you go through, you know, coming from this frustrating professor to boss or um, to something serious like health problem, in every trial, you have to see God's good purpose in that. And see God's absolute sovereignty in that. That he's not saying, oh, oops, sorry. No, he's saying, I gave it to you on purpose. And through that, you have to grow. So we will show in our knowledge and faith of who Jesus is. So that's my hope for us as we on this journey as a church to grow in Jesus. Can I pose a question for you to consider right now as you process the message? The question might be, you know, what may be in your life a storm that Jesus is bringing to you right now? And in that storm, you know, what aspect of you know, who God is could you be learning through that trial? And at the same time, you know, what aspect of your spiritual life could God be trying to grow during this time? Because there is a purpose in the absolute sovereignty of God in every trial. Let's pray together. Let's uh, spend some time in our prayers. you have been reading through uh, Mark uh, more closely. He's a very vivid writer. Uh, as I mentioned, this is a little more detailed information, but um, there are a lot of information that uh, is not necessary, such as you know, Christian that Jesus was you know, using, um, and also uh, you know, there being like multiple boats uh, besides uh, that of Jesus. Scholars say it shows that um, this story is an eyewitness account. It's not a fabrication, but he was um, recording every single word that uh, his friend Peter was telling him. Um, 
And I think what that means is, you know, we really need to visualize the story. We really have to immerse into the story. Um, and when, when we hear about storm, imagine yourself in the storm. When you hear about Jesus calming the story, imagine that that scene. Uh, I think uh, I've been meditating on the fact that the, the reason why uh, perhaps um, you know, Christians these days are struggling is because our imagination has diminished because of technology. Uh, before, there's a lot of books to read and you can really imagine different things that goes beyond logic. I think um, as we are just so used to getting things what we want, getting things that we want right away, I think we've really lost that. So imagine with me. Uh, let's go into the story together. As we do that, let's, let's, let's pray honestly, God, help me um, to be fed by this story, God. Help me uh, to process this story well. After you do that, we'll uh, close with a song and uh, pray a little more. But uh, let's uh, enjoy this time together as we uh, hear of God's word and uh, enter into uh, the storyline together. Let's pray. To close, uh, let's ask us to uh, pray one thing, uh, which is that we would grow to love Christ more in, in any and every circumstance we go through. And I say that because. Um, that the point of the passage was not simply to you know, suffer well, you know, which is a good point too. Because uh, if you think about it, uh, that point is actually made in a lot of other religions too. The suffering is processed in different ways, but it's a big deal because suffering is not uh, meant to feel good. What's unique about Christianity is that that we make much of Christ. Purpose of us going through different trials is, uh, in fact, Peter uses the image of uh, gold being refined by fire. Meaning, there's a lot of dross uh, in our faith, in our hearts, right? There are a lot of other loves that we cherish, a lot of other things that we, uh, you know, go after, so that you know, Christ is not that beautiful in our in our in our lives, and uh, we don't cherish. But imagine with me, what if those tough times, um, you know, help get rid of those uh, dross and um, dirt from our hearts and we can simply cherish Jesus alone? Just think about it. I mean, in fact, that's what heaven, heaven will be all about, right? It's about enjoying Jesus alone. He's my love. My first love. He's my only love. My heart goes after him. My, my heart pants after him like deer pants the stream of water. Oh, I only want Jesus. I only want Jesus. He's the only one that is beautiful in my eyes. That's Christianity. And can we pray together that, uh, that our goal would be to love Jesus more? as our only love. Pray that and I'll close with us. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, um, listen to our feeble cries uh, and love you more. We know we fall short of your glory, of your majesty, of your beauty. But thank you for uh, the shed blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That we're completely forgiven in his grace. That we're given second chance over and over to be forgiven, to be restored, uh, to keep growing in our faith until Jesus is the only rock that we have left. Oh Lord, uh, renew our hearts through your spirit um, so that in any situation that the enemy brings to uh, divide our hearts, our hearts may be drawn supernaturally to Jesus Christ. God, we need you. And I do pray for those of us who are in some unspeakable, um, you know, heart-shattering circumstances in this room, or even the ones that are joining us uh, you know, via live stream. I pray that you would comfort them and help them Feel your presence in a maximum way so that their empty hearts may be filled uh, with you alone and by your grace may they find strength and get to love Jesus more. Help us, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, drawing us closer to you. 